Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. And then again, as Pastor Jonathan said, we are wrapping up our sermon series, Looking at David. And I'm going to be reading this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 18, verses 33 through 19, verse 8. And I invite you to hear God's word as we look at this tragic chapter in David's story. King David was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And it was told to Joab, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the troops. For the troops heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. The troops stole into the city that day as soldiers steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your officers who have saved your life today, and the lives of your sons and your daughters, and the lives of your wives and your concubines, for love of those who hate you and for hatred of those who love you. You have made it clear today that commanders and officers are nothing to you. For I perceive that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. So go out at once and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than any disaster that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king got up and took his seat in the gate. The troops were all told, see, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the troops came before the king. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask that through your scriptures, you teach us, that you speak to us. We ask that we hear your word through your scriptures. As we look to this chapter in David's story, we ask, Lord, that you help us to understand who is actually in control, that you help us to heed the caution that we see here in David's story, and that you remind us that all control is ultimately in your hands. We thank you. We praise you. It's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we ask this. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're jumping right into the middle of a very lengthy story. And it's actually not in the middle. It's actually towards the end of a lengthy story with David. This is the story of Absalom, one of David's sons. And in my mind, it's the most tragic story for David. It takes about chapter 13 through 19 of 2 Samuel to tell this story. And it's actually the lengthiest chapter or the lengthiest story in all of David's tale. I mean, the Goliath story, that's probably what most people think of when they think of David, but that's a chapter and a half or so, depending on how you categorize it. This is six or seven chapters. It's more than double the attention than Goliath gets. And it is, I think, the most tragic part of David's story. And I think this picture of David weeping is, 
in my mind, the defining image of David in the Bible. Though I think most of us might not even be familiar with this story. You might have heard the name Absalom because of a William Faulkner novel. But other than that, I don't know if we all know the details to this story or have looked at it very closely. Remember I told you also that David's story is told in two different places in the Bible, in 1 and 2 Samuel and then also in 1 Chronicles. But the Chronicles version, it tries to clean things up for David. So I just want to read for you how Chronicles addresses the story with Absalom because I think this is the version most of us are more familiar with. 1 Chronicles 3 says this. These are the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelite. The second Daniel by Abigail the Carmelite. The third Absalom, son of Makkah, daughter of King Talmai of Geshur. The fourth Adonijah, son of Haggath. That's it. That's all it says about Absalom in Chronicles. And I want you to know that My prayer for each and every one of you is that you find somebody in your life willing to overlook your flaws the way Chronicles is willing to do for David. I hope that for each and every one of you. But that's it. 2 Samuel gets chapters 13 through 19 for this story alone. And Chronicles doesn't address it. Because I believe it doesn't look great for David. It's not a good story for him. It's not just that it's tragic. He's not a good king. And there's no way of getting around that when you look at how this story plays out. What happens in this story is one of David's sons, Amnon, who was mentioned there in Chronicles, one of his older sons, he becomes infatuated in a very perverse way with one of David's daughters, with his own sister. And he deceives her, and I'll say he shames her. And then he blames her and sends her out in disgrace. She begs him not to, but Amnon does this. And as this happens, we're told David is angry, but that is it. David doesn't punish Amnon. He doesn't do anything for his daughter. He's completely absent, other than just being a little upset over it. So David's daughter, her name is Tamar, she goes to her other brother, Absalom, and Absalom takes her in. He cares for her. He steps in and does what David should have done. And then Absalom waits two years to see if David's going to do something to punish Amnon, but David does nothing. And after two years, Absalom takes matters into his own hands. He calls a council of all of David's sons, and while they're all gathered together, he takes Amnon's life. He gets vengeance for his sister. So David then exiles Absalom, sends him out of the kingdom, and Absalom is gone for a few years. And then Joab, David's nephew, who's the commander of his armies, he talks David into letting Absalom come back. Joab says to David, let the boy come back home. So Absalom comes back. David doesn't talk to him for a while. gives him the cold shoulder for a bit. And after a number of years again, Absalom begins looking at how ineffective David is as a ruler. And he starts going to the tribes in northern Israel, ancient Israel up there. And he starts telling them, look at how ineffective my father is. And Absalom starts raising a rebellion, a, a revolt. 
He raises an army to overthrow David, to kick David out of power. And the entire time, David doesn't know what to do. Joab, his commander, is actually the one who wins the battle for David. But even Joab stops listening to David. At the final battle, David gives a very clear command to Joab, do not harm the boy Absalom. And Joab completely ignores it and takes Absalom's life. David doesn't do much of anything throughout this whole story. And in that, I think we can actually pity David a little bit. Maybe a lot here. He's trying to be both a king and a father in the same moment. And he's not doing either well at all. And that picture of him grieving, of him mourning his son, it's one of the saddest pictures I can imagine. Because by mourning his son who had raised a rebellion against him, he actually is shaming all these soldiers who just gave their lives for David, who just tried to protect David, who just tried to make sure David stayed on the throne. He's shaming all of them because he's grieving his son. What are you supposed to do in that moment? He can't be a king and a father. The thing with David, when you look at his story in the Bible, when you look at 1 and 2 Samuel closely, I think it's pretty clear that his story is one of unfulfilled promise. David's story is one of unfulfilled promise. Think back to the beginning of it all. He's young. He's out as a shepherd. And Samuel the prophet comes in and anoints him king and says, you're going to be king someday. What in the world could David have known about being king? How could he have been prepared for all of these challenges that he's going to experience? Then he goes and he slays Goliath. And he's a hero and he marries the king's daughter. And you get the sense of, okay, maybe he can be king. And then Saul, the current king, is losing his mind. He chases after David, and Saul's not a good king. And you start thinking, maybe David will be a good king. Maybe he'll be a good king. And David refuses to lift a hand against Saul. But then David actually becomes king. And from the very beginning, he doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. All of this promise that David had, it's unfulfilled. He tries to build a temple for God, and God says, no, that's not what I want you to do. And then he goes and he takes Bathsheba and he has Uriah killed. And he violates his vows, his commitment to the people, pursuing his own selfish interest. He receives a curse. And then we have this Absalom story where the whole nation is thrown into civil war and David is helpless to do anything about it. It's built up to think he's going to be a, a good king, but he just isn't. And in that, I think we can pity David quite a bit here. And you could say, well, is this God's fault? I mean, God is the one who anoints David to be king. God is the one who sent Samuel there when he was so young, when he's just a shepherd, to be king. But I don't think it actually is God's fault here. I think you have to go back even farther in the story. Back to 1 Samuel 8. That's the chapter where the people of ancient Israel, they come to the prophet Samuel and they say, we want a king. And Samuel says on behalf of God, no, you don't trust me. And they say, no, we want a king. We want someone who's going to go fight our battles for us. We want to be like all the other nations around us. 
And Samuel says, no, a king is going to take and take and take. And a king is going to be selfish. And a king isn't going to be good for you. Samuel tells them everything that's going to happen. And they still say, we want a king. In that moment, ancient Israel tried to take control into their own hands. They wouldn't let God be the one who was ruling over them. They wouldn't let God be the one who was in control. God told them, this is what's going to happen. So I think when we see this picture of David mourning his son Absalom, we have to recognize that's what happens when we try to take control into our own hands. That's what happens when we don't let God be God and when we try to take control into our own hands. That's what awaits us. Human beings were never meant to be in control of everything. We were never meant to be the ones who were making all the decisions. That was always supposed to be God. But ancient Israel, they wanted to feel secure. They looked around at all the other nations and they said, look at how powerful they look. Look at how secure they are. I want to be like that. We want to be like that. And I think far too often we take control into our own hands, or at least we try over and over again in all sorts of different areas in our lives. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but our whole political culture here is uh, pretty unhealthy. That's the kind of deep insights you come to church for, right? Yeah, you can, can figure that one out on your own. But I think at its core, there's, there's many reasons for that. But one of the reasons, I believe, is because we've started to think that we can control things with our politics. That if our candidate gets elected, then all the problems are going to be solved. If our candidate is in power, and if the policies we think are right are going to be enacted, then everything's going to be better. We're going to fix everything. But the truth is... It's not ours to control as human beings. And whoever you elect, there's going to be problem after problem after problem. They're not going to fix everything. That's the truth of it. It's not ours to control. We have a very, very small way in which we can influence things. And I'm not saying don't vote. Participate. Vote. It's good to do so. But don't talk about it in the way in which you present it as though you're going to fix all the problems. Don't lift up your politics as an idol. Don't try to take control through the way you vote or the way you tell other people to vote. That's not the way it works. We are human beings. There's always going to be problems until the day Jesus returns. Another area I think, it's good to save your money. It's good to be careful with your finances. But it's not good to hoard your money. And if you start thinking that the money you save is going, that you save is going to take care of all the problems in your life, if you start thinking that your finances are going to save you, well, at that point, you're trying to control what isn't yours to control. If you start thinking that hoarding up money and wealth is going to protect you, you're replacing God in that moment with wealth, which is something I think we all do. Again, it's good to save, but the importance you place on it, the control you think you're grabbing through it, that's where it can become a real problem. And I think also in just interpersonal relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, family relationships, 
I think we get into those moments where we want to try to protect ourselves, where we want to try to control other people because we don't want to get hurt. And we can, real, we can start manipulating it without realizing. We can start manipulating others without realizing it because we're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to defend ourselves. There's other ways I'm sure that you could think of in your own life where you try to grab control. You may not even think of it initially as grabbing control, but in reality, you're trying to secure yourself. You're trying to protect yourself. You're trying to defend yourself. You're trying to fix all the problems in your life. And you're trying to grab control. That picture of David mourning Absalom is so important because whenever we try to grab control, that's what awaits us. We can't protect ourselves. We can't defend ourselves. The sad truth of this life is we go through it vulnerable the entire time. So let go. Let go of trying to control so much in your life. Let go and realize that if David's story is the one of unfulfilled promise, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. In the Gospels, especially Matthew and Luke, they go to great lengths to connect David to Jesus. The genealogies that Matthew and Luke begin with explicitly connect Jesus and David. They say that Jesus is of the line of David. I think you could wonder, looking at the story of David, why? I mean, David objectively is not a good king. So why do they connect Jesus to him? And we know that in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is familiar with First and Second Samuel because Luke quotes First and Second Samuel verbatim at times. So Luke had the whole story there. I think it's because where David failed, Jesus succeeds. Where David's promise is left unfulfilled, Jesus fulfills it. Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is better than David. The ways in which David left the people still longing for a good ruler, for a good king, Jesus fulfills that. And I've said over and over again, Jesus is king. I think every single sermon in this series, I've said Jesus is king. And I'm going to continue saying that until we understand that what that means is you hand control over to Jesus. When you let go of it, you're not just throwing things to the wind, but you're letting Jesus take over. You're letting Jesus have control, which means in those moments where you start getting riled up by your political media and you start thinking your political opponents are the enemy and you have to defeat them and you have to get rid of them, that you have to hurt them, harm them, take all the power away from them. In those moments where you start feeling that, if Jesus is your king, you stop yourself, you pause, and you say, no, my king commands me to love my enemy. You start praying for them. You start figuring out how that politician, how that group of people that you can't stand, you start figuring out how can you pray for them, how can you serve them, how can you love them. If Jesus is your king, that's what handing control over to him looks like. In the same way, when you start hoarding up your wealth, when you start trying to protect yourself by gathering as much as you can, start trying to secure yourself with finances, in those moments you stop and you say, no, Jesus calls me to use my wealth for the sake of the kingdom, 
to give to the church. And again, as I say all the time, if you're not comfortable giving to Stonebridge, go find a church you can give to. It is part of following Jesus. But you also give your money to nonprofits that give people a glimpse of the kingdom of God. They give people a glimpse of what God is doing in their lives. Your money is used not for yourself, but it's used for the sake of God's kingdom. Or in your interpersonal relationships where you start feeling like, I can't be vulnerable. I have to protect myself. I have to defend myself. And you start finding yourself lying to people, manipulating people. You stop and you say, no, Jesus calls me to serve others, to love others, to care about their well-being, even before my own. That's what Jesus being king means. That's what handing control over to him looks like. And that's what we are called to do. Give Jesus control. Hand it to him. The alternative is this picture we see in David, where he is mourning his son, where this tragedy befalls him, a tragedy befalls the entire kingdom. Ancient Israel made a decision to try to take matters into their own hands. And this is what it led to. Absalom, Absalom, this moment of grief. And I got to tell you, until Jesus comes on the scene, it's not any better for most of David's descendants. We aren't meant to be in control. Jesus sits upon the throne. He is the king. And let's hand control over to him. Please pray with me. Lord, you are the king. We forget that so often, though. We try to take matters into our own hands. We trust our own instincts instead of trusting your words. We trust our own way of living instead of trusting the way that you teach us to live. Help us to hand control over to you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to lift you up as king.